Hello and welcome to The Health Pulse, a podcast exploring how analytics in the health and life sciences industry is growing and the convergence that is impacting all our lives. My name is Greg Horn and I am your host for the series and as always I will be joined by my expert guests to discuss a topical subject. And on this week's episode, we turn our attention to clinical trials with our very special guest, Javara CEO, Jennifer Byrne. And she was included in the Women of Influence feature in the latest Pharma Voice Digital Edition and is an inspirational and influential leader in the industry. Before we get to speaking to Jennifer, though, just one quick reminder that we still have our email address, and that is the Health Pulse Podcast at sas.com. That's the Health Pulse Podcast at sas.com. Please keep those questions and suggestions coming through. We do find them very useful and very interesting, and they are helping us shape the series and episodes to come. So thank you very much for all those contributions. Anyway, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming this week's guest, Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer, good afternoon. Could you do a quick introduction, please? Good afternoon, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Again, my name is Jennifer Byrne. And I have been really a career-long clinical research fanatic is probably the best um, way to describe myself. So I got lucky enough. I just kind of fell into this profession coming right out of college. And I've had the great opportunity over the past 30 years to be involved in thousands of clinical trials, including hundreds of thousands of clinical trial participants. And I've had just the privilege of seeing the benefits of clinical research um, to real life people every day. Fantastic. And we always ask people at the start of the podcast about something they do when they're not researching or whatever else. Um, so tell us about a hobby, Jennifer, that you do. Well, I would say there are a lot of components to clinical research that I've taken on as hobbies as far as a, a, a number of additional kind of extracurricular related clinical research activities. But probably apart from clinical research, in addition to just all the time that I can spend with my family would be time on the road, running miles after miles. And uh, so I'm in the process right now of actually training for what will be my 14th marathon. Wow, that's fantastic. And uh, when you're in that training mode, actually, because I'm really interested in this idea, uh, what does it help you to, to relax or does it help you think more about what you do in, in work? How, how does that kind of work for you when you run? What goes into your mind space? I think it's really a mixed um, bag of relaxation and strategic thinking time. So I find myself um, using the time, well, sometimes I'm running with a friend. And so if I'm running with a friend, it's probably a lot of storytelling. If I'm running on my own, then it is an opportunity to relax, but also kind of replay conversations, replay scenarios, replay experiences and just kind of take the time to go back to maybe um, a moment that I wasn't maybe quite so much in the moment and really intentional about what was going on at that point in time. So it's always kind of a second chance. Fantastic. That's interesting. I'm the same on my bike, to be honest. So that's great. Um, Jennifer, just tell us a little bit about Javara. What, what is it that you do? What's the company set up for? So the company is really um, centered around building and providing a research, a clinical trial um, infrastructure that really supports larger healthcare organizations. And healthcare organizations can be pretty broadly defined, whether they're large mega physician practices, practice management organizations, academic 
um, medical centers, learning health systems. We are really here to provide and to build uh, a highly customized, again, clinical research infrastructure. So the back office as far as pharma relationships, contract negotiations, budget negotiations, all the regulatory framework um, that's necessary. And in addition to that, we are also providing a highly professionalized research staff. And that staff winds up really being embedded within our healthcare partners. And, um, you know, the goal is always that we are integrating seamlessly so that at the end of the day, for a patient and for physicians involved with us in research, they really feel as though we are part of a unified team. So we're not here to create confusion or clunky handoffs in the clinical research process. Fantastic. Now, um, our podcast is aimed at health and Lyme sciences. So let's jump back a step and think about some of the kind of traditional way that a clinical trial is done. Can you just explain a little bit about, you know, what is a CRO and what is the kind of the old way of doing the clinical trial? Well, CROs, contract research organizations, by definition, really emerged, I guess, as an enterprise within the clinical research ecosystem, probably going back to the 1980s. And the genesis for CROs really was in response to pharma companies having a need to have another solution rather than everything being insourced within the pharma company. If you think about the clinical trials process, it is a finite process. While it's way too long and it costs too much, um, it is, relatively speaking, a temporary state. And so building a permanent workforce with highly customized professionals with therapeutic focus and, you know, just many of the different elements that are required through the process, I think really drove the industry to innovate the clinical research organization or the CRO. So the CRO really is kind of an outsource partner for pharma. If you actually transition to Javara, Javara came to market as an integrated research organization. So the difference with the integrated research organization, much like the CRO was built for purpose to serve the pharma industry to drive a more efficient kind of clinical trial partnership, so too is the integrated research organization to the healthcare system. Healthcare systems can do research on their own, but oftentimes the business problem around building a robust clinical research infrastructure from a system standpoint is that it's often very costly, can be very inefficient, and, uh, you know, lead to some internal business challenges for the healthcare system. Fantastic. And uh, as you progress, you've already mentioned it briefly there, uh, you're looking more at health learning environment, learning health system, sorry. And you mentioned it already once. Um, just tell me a bit more by what you mean by a learning health system and what are the benefits of that kind of system? Well, I think the concept behind the emerging learning healthcare systems across the United States is really a very symbiotic relationship whereby that particular healthcare organization recognizes the opportunity to deliver improved healthcare through research. So research becomes care and care becomes research. 
And from a Javara standpoint, you know, our partnerships are very much centered around a strategic vision and partnership so that we are bringing clinical research offerings to the healthcare system to really address the unmet needs of the patient population for the system. Simultaneously, we're still working with pharma companies and addressing the data needs and, and addressing all the scientific, you know, process that goes with clinical trials. But we're actually, you know, stacking the impact, as I would describe it, of clinical research and how can we actually leverage, in particular, phase two, phase three clinical trials um, across the, again, the unmet needs of the patient population for whom that healthcare system is serving. Fantastic. And so that must involve um, the introduction of new technologies. So uh, can you just talk a little bit about your experience in that whole kind of new technology and potentially new economic models that would come with that too? So the underpinning of, of addressing the unmet needs of the patient population obviously comes with the ability to be able to dive deeply into an electronic health record. But it's not the electronic health record alone, right, that, that answers uh, those questions for us or directs us necessarily in, in a pinpointed direction. So I think data assets within the healthcare system, a number of data assets, um, very much can help us identify the right patient for the right trial at the right time. So in addition, from a technology standpoint, I think it would be, um, you know, again, claims data, Troves, you know, troves of, of healthcare data that healthcare systems have. Um, you know, we are finding, in addition to the data assets, technologies that really will allow us to further pinpoint within electronic health records. So, those technologies and those companies that are allowing actually protocol matching capability. So, taking the vast or, or a significant portion of the average of 50 to 60 inclusion-exclusion criteria and being able to take that data and driving that down, you know, using AI, for example, and looking across the unstructured data within electronic health records and other data sources. So that's, you know, a, a key technology that really unlocks patient access in a pretty significant way. And in terms of an economic model then, um, what uh, information have you do you find in that space in terms of things like you know cutting cost or improving uh, patient outcomes in that sense? Well, without that technology, again, identifying trial participants is extraordinarily cumbersome from a labor standpoint and and just from an outcome standpoint. So kind of back in the day when I was earlier on in my career and we didn't have the benefit of the technology that we have today, it might well be that on average it would be more likely that we would spend time and we would review, um, you know, paper charts or other sources. And it was like a needle in a haystack finding a clinical trial participant. You know, the, the manual labor that would go into that could be extraordinary. Whereas today we can access across millions of patient records and with the ability to really fine tune and lock in, like I said, especially in terms of some of the AI and the unstructured data, we can arrive to um, pointing us in the direction of a much smaller 
but a very highly probable patient population. So I think, you know, the good thing for those of us who are very patient-oriented and derive, I'm going to say, greater satisfaction and pleasure in directly connecting with patients, from a research ecosystem standpoint, I think it allows the workforce to do the things that we really need for people to be doing. And that's connecting with the participants, ensuring patient compliance, driving education, and then leaving the technology, right, to help us just much more efficiently target and identify the estimated 56 million patients that we need right now participating in research. Wow, that's a huge number of patients. And uh, I think one of the things that's come out as a theme throughout making the podcast has been this idea of bias and perceived bias as well. So when you're going looking for these patients, now you have access to this information, do you find it easier to remove bias and get a more equitable view of populations? Or have you found bias is still just as prevalent as it has ever been? Well, Greg, I'm going to answer this. This might be taking this in a bit of a different direction than what you where you thought we were going to go with this. I'm actually going to say in my experience, some of the greatest bias is physician and provider bias. So a very common theme in my experience, and especially as we are starting to work with new healthcare systems and working with healthcare leaders, there tends to be a bias that, number one, patients are not interested or not as interested in participating in research as they actually are. And number two, from an administrator standpoint uh, within larger healthcare systems, oftentimes the bias of the leaders are that the physicians are not interested in research. And that is absolutely not the case. Yeah, I see. Um with this concept of decentralized clinical trials, that we do need more physicians engaged. And there is often this feeling that physicians don't want to be involved in this. So can you talk a bit about how do we get more physicians engaged? And what does that mean in terms of uh, you know, access to new medicines for their patients? Well, this is where I think technology can be a tremendous asset. I think we have to be thinking about using technology. And of course, you know, the buzzword is all about patient engagement, but I think that we need to be more intentional about physician engagement. Particularly, I believe strongly that the best way for a patient to come to a clinical trial is actually through and together with their trusted healthcare provider. Now, it might not be that that trusted healthcare provider is walking hand in hand in the journey of their clinical trial participation as an investigator, for example. But I do think that as far as ultimately the outcome for the patient, their clinical trial participation and the insights that are gleaned uh, through their participation, keeping that in sync with their overarching healthcare is absolutely fundamentally important. So I think that, you know, using technology to ensure that the trusted physician or practitioner community, whether that's one or that's 10 surrounding that patient, is well-informed, I believe that that is absolutely key. Now, the default is generally where the conversation goes, in my experience, is people will say, well, it's, it's hard to get physicians involved and on board with advocating for trial participation because they don't want to, quote unquote, lose their patient to another physician. 
I think communication is key. And again, keeping, you know, those physicians in the know and informed. And if we can do that from a digital standpoint and, you know, on their terms, uh, then all the better. I do think that there is an opportunity um, from a compensation standpoint. I think we need to be thinking about a broader compensation model uh, so that perhaps those trusted physicians that are providing ongoing care for other ailments or concerns on an ongoing basis that a trial participant has as a patient, I think that there are professional services that physicians around a clinical trial participant can actually be involved and ensuring, right, that the um, protocol and, you know, prohibited concomitant medications, for example, are not being breached in some way. And so in a way, you know, you're really creating an economic model that is a full support, thinking about the trial participant also as an ongoing healthcare consumer with um, ongoing, you know, patient needs. And that raises an interesting question to me then that, you know, one of the things we know in healthcare in general is that people are very bad at things like adherence and being part of a process when it's not even a clinical trial. It's just they are sick and they've been prescribed something and they have to keep taking it. And adherence is always a big issue. In this idea of a decentralized clinical trial, how do you keep the patient engaged, particularly if it's a trial that isn't necessarily something they're feeling direct benefit from? And how do you keep that adherence level high? Well, inherent to the clinical trial process, I do believe that the construct of the clinical trial really can deliver what I'm going to describe to be probably a more optimal care delivery uh, journey for a patient. So whether that's happening in a virtual environment or it's happening in a traditional environment, we know that um, to collect a complete set of data to answer those scientific questions that need to be answered we do need ongoing feedback and data, you know, coming from the patient. So I think that in the, you know, decentralized model or, again, in the traditional model, technologies and communications, just in terms of keeping that ongoing contact, I do think that there are tremendous opportunities and there are a number of change agents that are working on new solutions, you know, in a very active way. But I do think the ideal state is when we get to that point where we allow the patient from the very beginning, thinking about the phenotype, right? I mean, we, we fit into different phenotypes from a healthcare consumer standpoint. How do we like to get our information? And, you know, the ability to be able to kind of customize based on phenotypes. You know, do individuals prefer to be text? You know, do they want a text message? Do they want to be able to come into a clinic? Do they want to do video chat? And I think, you know, kind of getting to the point where we can offer a more customized approach without losing the scientific integrity around standardization and all of those um, principles that we know are so important that cannot be compromised. 
So, okay, here's a question for you then. We are currently, arguably, in the biggest phase three clinical trial that has ever been conducted uh, with the uh, rollout of vaccinations for the coronavirus, coronavirus-19. Um, what impact do you think that's going to have on patients' uh, willingness to be part of clinical trials? Do you think this is going to help for the future or is it going to be something that hinders maybe the rollout of clinical trials? Well, no doubt about it. Uh, for me, it is helpful. And we're already seeing that in real time. You know, this time last year, the vast majority of clinical trials and new clinical trials outside of COVID-19 were almost non-existent. One year later, we're in a vastly different world. And while we're still living in the midst of the pandemic in a number of ways, um, you know, life is resuming from an R&D standpoint. And overall, uh, you know, we are seeing tremendous, I'm going to say, I, I don't know if it's double, I couldn't give you, you know, hard and fast mm -hmm. statistics, but kind of anecdotally, I can tell you that what we're seeing across the clinics in terms of patient receptivity to research is tremendous. And, you know, as much, if not maybe even more so, the level of interest from physicians there's not a week that goes by that I'm not having a conversation with somebody, whether it's an administrator, it's a physician, or it's somebody on our team, that you know they are relaying that a group of physicians or an individual physician who was not interested, you know, two years ago in research is mm -hmm. very, very interested, um, you know, and that's not just in participating COVID nineteen related. Okay, that's really interesting. So one last question before we wrap up. Uh, the future, what do you hope or predict will the future bring in terms of clinical trials? Where do you think the next year to sort of two years will bring us? Well, Greg, I mean, you know, I think for me, I love that question and thank you for asking that. So the, the hope and dream for me would be that we move to a place um, together as a society whereby clinical research is on the menu of options for all of us as healthcare consumers. We've got a long ways to go, but I think that we are, you know, headed in the right direction. You don't know what you don't know. And um, the fact that 5% of oncology patients participate in clinical trials, no doubt, is, is evidence in and of itself that we must do better. Yeah, fantastic. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that seeing more personalized medicine in that space is going to be a, a, a really big deal for a lot of patients. So thank you very much, Jennifer, for joining us today and for sharing your insights. I think our audience are going to find that very interesting because we certainly see a lot of tie through the series right now in terms of how data is shared, where clinical trials are happening, and how that is changing the, uh, the research space in terms of pharmaceuticals. So again, thank you very much for joining us today, Jennifer. And uh, we will be wrapping up today with just a reminder that we do have our email address, the Health Pulse Podcast at sas.com. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, my name's been Greg Horn. I have been your host, and I look forward to welcoming you to another episode in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much, and we'll speak to you soon. <laughs>